This is Glenn Zuckman in the Long Beach State Art Department Video Lab with Dred Scott. Welcome. Hi, Glenn. Hi. Tell us about your work. Well, I do a lot of different kind of stuff. I I'm, uh, kind of came out of a photo-based background. Uh-huh. And um, from there, I ended up moving into installations and sculpture and... I do some screen printing and a little bit of performance. But the main thing, and I think is really important, that what most interests me about work, and specifically mine, and it's what ties it together, is kind of the content. The thing that's really interesting about my work, I think, is what I'm talking about. And I try to make work that sort of speaks to the hopes and joys and aspirations of the oppressed. And, and you know, sometimes that'll... You know, I mean, trying to do an installation that talks about police brutality. Sometimes it'll be a photo-based project that talks about people in prisons and jails. I've done a range of stuff, but it's always trying to help people, you know, see the see this world, you know, and it's all all its contradictory nature, and hopefully inspire a certain section of people to to want to change it. Yeah, I was looking at your website, and there's some pretty powerful work there. And I, we want to talk about that, but actually, the one thing that came to my mind, just in terms of thinking of the variety of work that's done here in Long Beach, is I mean, how, how does formal work that, that's really about mostly formal issues, what does that do or not do for you? Well, I mean, I kind of don't think that there's anything that's just about form. I mean, I think, you know, even, you know, minimalist or abstract work, you know, has content to it. Sometimes it, it, it influences things more subtly uh, than others, but, but, you know, often I think sort of interesting formal stuff grows up in opposition to other things. Like the abstract expressionists, they grew up in sort of opposition to socialist realism. Right. Um, And, you know, I I actually, while I think that there was some interesting formal ground open up with that, I I think that that was not the best sort of thing that happened. But, you know, on on another level, I mean, it's like if you look at some of the constructivist or suprematist work that came out of the Soviet Union or what was Russia, you know, initially, um, really did challenge a lot of more stale and, and you know, dead work, or the work of, say, Richard Serra, who you know, is, I think, one of the most significant sculptors today. I mean, it's really kind of abstract, but it's really powerful, and I think actually talking in an interesting way about what's going on in the world. I mean, none of that work is the work I kind of choose to make, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in it, and I think it's really important for people who you know, are, are interested in sort of helping to propel history forward or helping to change the world or do socially engaged work to really kind of grapple with the breadth of work out there and not sort of have a narrow view of what sort of political art is. Um, I mean, my work tends to be much more direct in a lot of ways, um, and, and that's you know very much by choice, but I, I don't think that's the only way that people can go about making work that kind of serves the people in some way. And um, tell us about a few maybe of your pieces so we can get an idea of, of yeah. some of your issues, some of the ways you work. Well, I guess my most well-known piece or most notorious piece is a piece called What's the Proper Way to Display a U.S. Flag? It was kind of a conceptual installation for audience participation, and it, uh, back in 1989, became the center of national controversy. But to, to before getting into the controversy, um, it would be helpful to describe the piece. The piece had a photo montage on the wall. The photo montage had the text, What's the Proper Way to Display a U.S. Flag at the top of it, and below that were f- photographs of South Korean students burning Yankee, burning a U.S. flag, holding signs saying "Yankee, go home, son of a bitch." And below that was flag-draped coffins, um, and then below that was a shelf that had books on it that were initially blank that people could respond to the question, "What's the proper way to display a U.S. flag?" And below that was a three by five foot flag that people could stand on if they wanted to as they wrote responses to the question. And as I said, in 1989, it became the center of controversy over its use of the American flag. It sort of there was already um, a Supreme Court case going to the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1989, um, around the time this work was shown, and so it kind of the, 
the battle around it was larger than just my work, but it it got to the point where fit right in the, into that context. Yeah, in the city, state, and the federal level, they ended up outlawing it. The U.S. Senate voted ninety-seven to zero to to denounce my work as they passed legislation to so-called protect the flag. Or and uh, President Bush the first publicly denounced my work, so it, it kind of got up there. But at the same time, there were a lot of people who were really. Uh, inspired by it and were overjoyed by it. I mean, there were people in housing projects that painted flags on the ground sort of in solidarity mm. with it, or they'd call into talk shows to tell me that I was kind of speaking for them. Um, and student, a student actually at, at uh, CalArts sort of recreated the work in solidarity, and it was just oh, wow. a wonderful kind of experience. But that was a long time ago, another project that I'm... Well, actually, I, I yeah. was looking at your website, and you yeah. list a bunch of the comments that people wrote in yeah. your books there. Yeah. And um, it seemed like a couple of them were really quite thoughtful comments mm-hmm. that they really, you know, someone said, well, I'm very patriotic, and looking at this really made me reconsider what that means. Yeah. Uh, but an awful lot of them, it seemed to me, were it, it, on one side or the other, were very polar comments. They either really hated you or, or kind of, in a sense, maybe hated the flag <laughs> one way. Um, and and I always wonder. I mean, when you look, there are so many like powerfully divisive issues in our culture mm-hmm. today. Do you think going like straight for that can you ultimately change minds, or, or does it become too polar too quickly? The work was an interactive work, and I think part of the power of it was that it allowed lots of people to interact with it and debate the question, and so that it wasn't just about what I thought about the flag, which I think was somewhat evident in the work, but it it actually was like, okay, let's talk about this question. And I think that for... But but the way it was constructed allowed people who often don't have voice on a question like that to, to speak, and it, bring, it gives them strength. And so... Before I completely answer the question of can it change minds, I think it's important that, say, for... I mean, one of the comments in the book was by this woman who the police, you know, shot her brother, and they said the police walked up to his body and kicked it over to make sure that the nigger was dead, and that cop wore a flag patch on his arm. So for people that have that experience... Um, they often, I mean, they're not, that part of the debate is rarely sort of voiced. And, and so I think that sort of even though it reaffirms some of their beliefs in a certain sense and doesn't say change their mind, having their voices out there is actually really integral to the work and it, it enables other people to say perhaps change their mind. And so the pr- people who then wrote, well, you know, I'm patriotic, but what does that really mean, have to think about, you know, well, how, does, does how do mean, other people... Yeah. Uh, view the flag and view America and its history. And, and you know, for other people, I mean, the, I, there were comments that, that were like, well, I thought I was an iconoclast, and when, yet when I'm seeing your work, I, I find that I can't stand on the flag, and so I have to think about that. Or other people, like, you know, I was raised very patriotic, I really love my country, but seeing people issue death threats to you makes me very sad and I find myself standing on the flag. And so that in that respect, I think it does, it did change some opinions. There was evidence of it in the books. I mean, there, there are over 2,000 comments, many in wow. different languages. Would you say our, our, that self-perception we have as the land of the free is, is a bit off? Or? Uh, well, very much so. And as we're talking about now being in 2003, I mean, Ashcroft is proposing legislation to strip people of their citizenship um, if they so-called support terrorist groups. And, well, I mean, if you know history, and it doesn't have to take a lot of political science to interpret, I mean, the main, the main legislation which the Nazis wrote, which they came into power, which actually enabled the, the construction of the Third Reich, the main legislation they wrote, obviously there was other things that went, it stripped Jews of their citizenship. Now, that was a whole people at once and not based on any so-called action. But, I mean, I think it's really significant when, you know, they're talking about, well, if you, if you do some action that, that the executive decides is 
illegal, they can distribute your citizenship and you have no rights then. Um, well, actually, speaking of, of being a citizen or not being a citizen, yeah. um, you should tell us a little bit about where you got your name. <laughs> well, my, my name is, is I, I stole it myself. Um, I figured if, if Robert Zimmerman could become Bob Dylan, I could become Dred Scott. And the history of it, I mean, it, there are a lot of reasons why I took that name, but the main one is to remind people of, um, of the Dred Scott decision. And, and that was a case, a case that went to the Supreme Court. And a, a, a slave got, he ended up being taken to the north, and while there, and the slave's name is Dred Scott, he, while he was there, he said, look, I'm free, I'm in the north. And so we brought his case to court. And when it got to the Supreme Court in 1857, they ruled that there are no rights that a black person has that a white man is bound to respect. And in effect said he's property, therefore he can't even be in the court or bring a case to court because you know a box can't sue somebody, so how could you right. know, this mere slave? But I, I think that you know some things have changed, but some things haven't changed all that much. And, and so that's kind of why I wanted to take that do you, name. Do you see, I mean, when I, in, in my sort of comfortable space, Look at the, look at history. It seems I feel like there's been a lot of progress. Hardly perfection, but a lot of progress. Do, do you feel that way or, or no? Well, I mean, I feel that on the one hand, it's a, a damn sight better to be a wage slave than a chattel slave. I mean, nobody physically owns me, and that's a huge improvement. But you know, it's like in terms. I mean, I have particular work that looks at sort of lynching versus police brutality, kind of. I mean, it's, hmm. this is a real reduction, but the the piece. Sort of when, when Amadou Diallo got shot, I happened to be doing some research on lynching um, for another work I was working on. And by and large, you know, people, and black people in particular, aren't lynched in America these days. But in doing the research, I found this article from the New York Times in 1930 that looked back at, back even further and said during a decade period at the height of lynching from 1885 to 1894, there was some, like, I think 1,726 people lynched, and that's the height, and it's the earliest records. Wow. There were more people, 2,010 people, killed by police and law enforcement um, from 1990 to 1999, the most recent records. Um, and so, okay, black people aren't strung up by trees and lit on fire and stuff like that, but the police are playing a very similar role to what lynch mob terror did at the turn of the century. And so, you know, there have been some real changes, yes. But, you know, in, in terms of how people in general, and not just black people, I mean, give an example of, of how it affects black people, but, I mean, for people generally, and particularly all over the world, you know, the, having the strengthening of the U.S., the fact that they could send armies anywhere they want and sort of say, well, we're going to preemptively invade a country because we think they might possibly, because of the possibility that they might possibly be angry at us and possibly have a weapon that might possibly come and do some possible harm to some possible place, we're going to drop actual bombs on actual people and blow their actual heads off. Um, you know, I, I just I don't see how there's there's been significant change, but I don't think all of it's improvement. <laughs> okay, um, tell us about some more works you've done. Some... Um, well, uh, a project that I'm working on on now that I, I'm really excited about is I'm going into prisons and jails and photographing and interviewing people, trying to tell the the story of a country that imprisons two million people from the standpoint of the prisoners. Um, and it actually I heard a started I heard a statistic yeah. oh, a while back that. The state of California is second only to the Gaza Strip for having the world's highest per capita incarceration rate. Is, is you, something like I've that? heard that something like that. I'm not positive about that, but the one that I do know that I think is most, even more sort of damning is that if California as a whole were a nation, it would have the third largest prison system in the world, only behind the U.S. as a whole and Russia as a whole. And, and so the project you're doing? Well, I'm... I'm 
photographing and interviewing people, and, and it's partially to show the faces of people um, that are in prison, because a lot of times they're hidden away, but also to, to hear what they have to say about this world. I mean, a lot of times the interviews do touch on their life and their experience in prison, but I'm often talking with them about broader, broader issues and sort of seeing what they have to say about this country and what sort of advice they have. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's all this talk about you know, getting tough on crime and war on drugs. And, and and the people who are most directly affected by that, the people who are spending two years or five years or 10 years or 25 years in prison, those people aren't ever talked to. And and so, you know, it's like I, I don't expect that everybody who sees this work will necessarily rejoice at it or, 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 or like it. I think many people will, and, and when it's been shown, they have. But the point is, it's like, this is something that has to be talked about, and you have to include those voices. Otherwise, it's it's just like a bunch of experts saying what they're doing to the people is great. And and it's like, well, what? how, do, how does it affect the communities where these people come from? How, I mean, what, you know, what are the effects on, on families, and what are the effects on, I mean, you know, kids who are just growing up who see that, you know, they're a statistic, and they're just waiting to go to prison no matter what they do. Tell us, uh, give us a little history lesson. Where were you born? Chicago. Born and raised. Stayed there for 27 years. And after, Brothers and sisters? Nah. Just one you? Of, one of me was enough. <laughs> one, was, one was enough. And where'd you go to school? Uh, well, I went, uh, for high school, I went to this snooty private school. And, uh-huh. and, and uh, for, for uh, college, I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. Snooty private school. <laughs> <laughs> And, and studied art there? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an art school, and I, I um, you know, went in sort of as a photographer. I basically I screwed up in high school, and I, I ended up not being able to become a computer computer engineer who was trained at Cal Arts, I mean Caltech or or MIT, and and so since I wasn't going to get that full scholarship there, or, or wasn't going to go to Harvard, I was like, well, I'll be a photographer because I grew up around cameras, and and I had no idea what the hell that was, and eventually somebody said, we'll take a class at the art institute. I'm like, okay, whatever that is, you know, and and I fell in love with it. I mean, I was just, I mean, I'd been taking pictures for years, but I didn't think about art or or, or anything like that or that I really had anything to say. And and I just, it it absolutely, I mean, I was, you know, a kid in a candy store when I was like, wait, I can take pictures of stuff that I'm interested in and people will pay attention and and that's all I got to do and you'll give me credit for that and, and I can make a life doing that. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, I'll do that. I mean, and I ended up, you know, while there being exposed to far more than photography, which was really good. I mean, I still love photography, but... Um, and in this piece you just described, you're kind of coming back to it, or maybe you never left. Yeah, yeah. But. No, well, I did actually leave for a while. I mean, I, I, it was funny. I started off at sort of a... I mean, I never did work quite like Ansel Adams, but I did very, you know, traditional F64 black and white oh, wow. photography. And, and I still like that stuff. I, I don't think I'd ever want to do much of it anymore, but... Um, that's where I came from, and I, I mean, but the first photos that I did that were really serious, I mean, I, I did photos of, of, like, I was, uh, I grew up on punk rock, and, and I did photos on the dance floor of, of punk clubs and hardcore shows, and then from there I ended up being more politicized at the time, and, and just through that and trying to figure out how to do this, how to make my art political, I realized I had my political life and my art, on, and they weren't together, and so to try and pull them together, I ended up... You know, after seeing well, after doing actually some political performances, I ended up seeing work like Hansaka, and that enabled me to figure out this sort of installation for audience participation thing, and and to do work that really demanded an engaged audience in some way. Even and you know, I was just, I mean, one of the things I was trying to do with work like that because the the flag piece wasn't the the first one in that body of work. I mean, there were actually eleven other pieces. 
that had that sort, same sort of participation. None of them had flags on the floor, but they all had you know people responding to questions and books with photographs on the wall. And and I just really wanted to make. I mean, there was a lot of so-called political art, or socially engaged art that people were doing that either you liked it or you didn't. But you didn't. It, I mean, it's like you could walk by it and not be affected. And I I wanted to make work that people had to have some sort of position on, and and that were they were kind of implicated when seeing you it. You couldn't so, just walk by. Yeah. It. And so even if you hated what I was saying, it was like okay, well now I've pissed you off. Tell the world I pissed you off and become part of the work. And or if you thought this is you know great and nobody's saying that, say that too. Like encourage the discussion. So after 27 years in Chicago, then... Went straight to New York. I was like, well, you know, I'm an artist, and, and you know, it's both because I'm an artist and that's the art capital of the universe, but, you know, I, also I, I was sort of a political person. I was a political artist or whatever, or a socially engaged artist, because um, all art, I think, is political. But I, I wanted to kind of meet sort of people in culture who were trying to do similar things and I knew that like Chuck D and, and people lived out in New York and, and they might come through Chicago but the chance of me really being able to connect with them in Chicago was small so I somewhat naively just said I'm going to New York and, and you know I caused trouble in Chicago I'll do the same thing in New York and <laughs> I live on planet Brooklyn. I don't quite live in Manhattan very much by choice. It's like it's, it's uh-huh. you know, it's close enough to New York that I'm a New Yorker, but it's far enough away that it, and it's got a different flavor to it. It's And the difference between planet Brooklyn and planet Manhattan? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Manhattan is, I mean, or the Manhattan most people think about, because if you go far enough north and you get up to Harlem and uh, Washington Heights, I mean, it actually is, you know, sort of interesting communities. But most of Manhattan is kind of like, it's a business world that people happen to live in. And, you know, they're not all that connected to community. And, and, you know, and in Brooklyn, I mean, I've got a tree out in front of my house and I've got a park out in front of my house. And and I've got actual tree. And, And they're actual people whose names I know on the block that I live on. And... You know, when I was in, in, I mean, when I first went to New York, I lived in Manhattan. I lived in Tribeca, which was like, you know, just south of Soho. It's the hip art scene. I was like, yes, I've arrived. Me, the great artist, is in, you know, I'm in New York. I'm in Tribeca. And, you know, it was, I mean, it was loud. I mean, I'd go out of my house and, you know, it's like people would run you over trying to, like, you know, get some, you know, to the 99 cent store or whatever. And, and other people would be rushing down to Wall Street. And it was just, and I didn't, I didn't know a single person on the block. I lived there for a year, and I didn't know, I mean, outside of my roommates. I mean, there were people I recognized, but I didn't know anybody else. It's, it's unreal. I mean, it, you know, and, you know, I mean, for those who like it, great. You know, it's like, you know, some people actually in, in, enjoy that out of Manhattan. I, uh, you know, I ended up in Brooklyn by accident because there was a fire in my loft and or the floor below. I didn't lose anything, but I had to move on no notice and ended up in my worst nightmare, you know, one river away from New York. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is really cool. I mean, there are artists out here. There are poets and musicians and there's a, a spoken word scene and there's people that I like and I could just kick it with and there's a coffee shop that'll hang out and all these interesting people will come through and and so yeah and and you know it's like particularly somebody's black they're like black people in concentration I mean it was the neighborhood I moved into was very multinational actually it was predominantly black and and it was like better than being in a predominantly white business oriented consumer neighborhood That was Dred Scott on Long Beach State Campus yesterday. Thanks for listening to Strange Angels. We'll be on www.kbeach.org every Thursday at 4. Up next is Bo with The 4 O'Clock Hoax. Bye-bye.